Corp movement is the most important social movement you've never heard of. So begins Better Business, the story of the rise of a new corporate form, the B Corporation. Chris, in your new book, Better Business, How the B Corp Movement is Remaking Capitalism, you describe the B Corporation as the most impressive example of business innovation you've seen. Can you share a particularly poignant example of this? Sure. So, you know, I've been studying businesses, entrepreneurship for 15 to 20 years now. Most times you see companies, they have innovative product and they try to sell this product, you know, might be innovative, might not be. But the thing that really impressed me about the B Corp leaders is that they're not trying to actually sell a product. They're actually trying to change the way the economic system in the world is practiced. And they take this not just about these B corporations or entrepreneurs, but about investors, changing investors' mindset, laws in our country, and eventually consumer behavior. You know, when I first started talking to them 15 years ago, they talked about this as a generational project. You know, and we're about halfway there, and I think that there's been significant progress. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, to be honest, is that the change speed on this is just growing exponentially, and I think it has huge potential. And making sense of the B Corp movement is what we'll be exploring today's conversation. Welcome to the Knowledge Institute podcast, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. I'm Jeff Cavanaugh, head of the Infosys Knowledge Institute, and today we're here with Christopher Marquis, professor in sustainable global business and global enterprise at Cornell University's SC Johnson College of Business. Before Cornell, Chris worked for 10 years at Harvard Business School and has held positions at the Harvard Kennedy School, Hong Kong University, Peking, and others. His current teaching broadly focuses on social innovation and change and doing business in China. He's examined entrepreneurship in China, the triple bottom line, and building sustainable businesses globally in competition in emerging markets. Chris received a PhD in sociology and business administration from the University of Michigan. And lastly, published in September 2020, Better Business explores the rapid growth of companies choosing to certify as B Corps and explains why the future of B Corporations is vital for us all. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. Great to be here. You've been in academia for a while, but before that, I believe you worked in banking. What inspired you to pursue this path? Yeah, I think a couple things. Interesting question. So one is, even when I was working, how the social and political dynamics underlying decisions is what I found really interesting. You learn in the MBA school that everything is done based on sort of rational financial analysis, what the internal rate of return is. But actually what I found when I was working is that there's a lot of social dynamics. And so first, I wanted to actually study that. Second, the bank that I worked at actually did a lot of things in the community, did a lot of CSR projects, really active in nonprofits, philanthropy. And I felt that business could actually play a big role in society. And so that was another motivation for me to become an academic. Well, that got you going into the academic world. What sparked your interest in the B Corp movement specifically? So that also sort of stemmed sort of right from this past. So I started out studying CSR, large companies, large financial firms. I did some studies of Goldman Sachs, a bank, PNC Bank, which is one of the largest banks in the U.S., headquartered in Pittsburgh. And I was in class one day teaching a class on social responsibility of companies. And one of the students said to me, we're studying all these large companies that have CSR projects on the side. We should really be studying companies that have a social mission embedded in them, like B corporations. That was in 2009. I had never heard of anything like B corporations up until then. But I went back to my office and Googled it and got in touch with the founders of B Lab, which is the nonprofit that certifies B corporations, and, uh, and wrote the first business case on them, Harvard Business Case in 2010. Got it. Well, since you brought up B Lab, can you give a little more uh, information about them, their role, and the impact they're having? 
Sure. So B-Lab is a nonprofit organization headquartered in the U.S., and they are the, the organization that certifies these B Corps. So B Corp is like a business that's certified for its social and environmental impact. So, you know, you may think of things like fair trade or organic or lead. You know, these are all different kinds of certifications. And the B Corp certification is the only one for businesses. And you need a certifying entity. And so that's what B Lab is. And they look at companies, you know, how they treat their workers, how they treat their consumers, communities, environment, and their governance. And across all those different factors, companies answer and are assessed on a variety of different questions. And then finally, if they get above the threshold, they can become B Corps. You can imagine how some small niche companies might take this as their mission. What about the big incumbents? What's been the reception from larger companies that are public and have to answer to shareholders? So this movement's been around 14, 15 years now. I'd say for the first 10 or so years, it was almost all small or medium-sized companies. So, you know, companies like Patagonia or Seventh Generation, these are companies, hundreds of millions, billion plus dollar companies. So not small, but not sort of the large multinational publicly traded companies either. In the last number of years, there's been increasing interest among large companies. So for instance, Danone, French Paris-based health, nutrition, dairy company. So it's really become very active in the movement. Over 20 of its subsidiaries are certified B corporations, and it's committed to its global organization being certified by 2025. Its largest subsidiary, which is its U.S. subsidiary, is already certified as a B Corp. That's a $6 billion organization. Other large companies, Natura, which is a cosmetics company headquartered in Brazil, owns Avon, owns The Body Shop, is a certified B Corporation. And B Lab recently introduced a program to gather sort of more interest among large companies with a pathway where they can go gradually in the certification because it's a very daunting certification to take it on at once for a large company it might be sort of difficult. And organizations like Danone and Natura have signed on as mentors for these companies. And the first wave of companies, there's about six companies that are involved in this, and I think it will only grow. So it is something that large companies are really starting to pick up. It reminds me of the famous Winston Churchill quote, is it the end Maybe not the end or even the beginning of the end, but is it the end of the beginning? Is this the end of something with capitalism or the beginning of something else? So I would say that it's not the beginning of the end, but it's more like the end of the beginning. And so what I mean by that is that we're, I feel, at a new phase of stakeholder-oriented capitalism. For the last 50 years, we've been much more in a capitalist system that's focused on shareholders. So there's this idea of shareholder primacy, which stems from a 1970 essay in the 1970 essay published in the New York Times Magazine by Milton Friedman, where really companies are legally required now to put shareholders first. Think about the Wall Street movie, Gordon Gecko character, where sort of greed is good. He's pitching this to the board that actually, if you look out for shareholders, everything sort of works itself out. Well, we found out that's actually not true. If you look at how inequality has increased since then, if you look at environmental degradation since then, I think it's all very tied to this idea when you put shareholders first, there's economic incentives for CEOs and management to actually cut corners on their employee commitment and on their environmental commitment. So this idea of shareholder primacy, I think, is the end. And then the beginning part is the stakeholder capitalism, which not just B-Lab, but there's been a number of really important other notable events that have happened. So for instance, the Business Roundtable, this organization of 200 largest CEOs in the country just about a year ago put out a statement that you know we're abandoning this shareholder primacy model. We're going to be looking out much more for stakeholders in the future. World Economic Forum, 
has similarly is now focusing on stakeholders. And Larry Fink, you know, one of the world's largest investors, has been issuing letters over the past number of years trying to convince CEOs in companies he invests in to focus much more on purpose, stakeholders, and broader sustainability. So I think that it's, you know, we're at the beginning of a period of stakeholder capitalism, and the B Corp movement is an essential part of that. Well, in some respects, and not the first person to use this term, but this corporate city-state, these multinational global companies that span countries are their own entity in some respects, and they're working within these national boundaries, which again, people are trying to sort out what that means in, in the modern age. If they are taking steps to take on some of what governments did in the past, the social, the environmental, and basically take that mantle, does the government then, is there some give and take? to where they, there's an additional benefit that happens? I mean, is there a government give up or somehow, not acquiescence, I'm looking for the right word, but that if it's a partnership that emerges, do you see any early indications of that? In many ways, I think the government in a lot of places can be sort of an enabler of this type of activity. So one of the parts of the movement that has been very encouraging to me and has had a lot of success are legal changes. So I mentioned earlier that there's this fiduciary duty that directors and senior managers have uh, legally such that if they make a decision based on sort of a non-financial criteria, you know, they could potentially be sued by the shareholders. So in 36 US states, as well as a number of other countries outside the US, there now exists a type of corporation that puts stakeholders, you know, like employees, communities, environment, on the same legal playing field as shareholders. And so this is one thing I find governments do, where you know they open up the possibility for companies to actually operate these triple bottom line companies in a more effective way. Like for instance, say the business roundtable example, I do think you know, those CEOs are very well-meaning, but when there's like the legal DNA of the company is shareholder primacy. There is an internal conflict, an alignment issue between sort of what they're saying and doing and actually what their legal priorities are. And so I think that this idea of sort of changing the legal framework of companies or giving companies a choice to choose a legal framework that puts other non-financial stakeholders on the same level in some way as shareholders, I think that's a big, important change. You've had the pleasure of serving in or teaching in New York and also holding teaching positions in Hong Kong, Beijing, and Shanghai. So unique perspective. In your experience, how do student perspectives on B Corps vary between geographies? One of the things that I have been surprised about is sort of the passion about this among millennial generations around the world. So I've been teaching on this for 10 plus years now. I had been invited in Beijing, it was maybe three or four years ago, to give a talk on social innovation, I think the topic was, to a class at Peking University, a new master's degree in social enterprise management they had. And I brought out sort of the old examples I had, sort of large companies, got some Chinese SOEs in the mix. And the students afterwards came up to me and said, we want you to talk about the B Corporation movement. This was something we saw in your resume and wanted you to talk about this. And so I went back again and talked about B Corps in China, which they found to be really interesting and actually started a variety of sort of research projects. I did a Harvard case study on the first B Corp in China, sort of how they did it, why they did it. More generally, what I learned is actually because there's a lot more restrictions on civil society and NGO organizing in China, actually 
entrepreneurs that want to make a social impact have been very creative in like how they organize. And so there's actually were a lot of so-called businesses that actually existed to make a social impact in China. They would be NGOs anywhere else, but because the government limits sort of organization of NGOs, they were businesses. So there's very fertile ground. And so the movement there is still early stages, but there's, I subscribe to the WeChat groups of organizers. And I'd say every couple of days, there's some event that where B Corp 101 or talk from new B Corp or B Corp meetup. So it's a really growing and vibrant area. It's still early, but I think it has a lot of potential. Once again, we're here with Christopher Marquis, professor in sustainable global enterprise at Cornell and author of Better Business, How the B Corp Movement is Remaking Capitalism. Chris, your book highlights how millennials already make up almost half the workforce and will inherit 30 trillion with a T in the coming decades. How will demographics influence this B Corp movement? Yeah, I think that's a really big deal. That's something I've learned about a lot through my teaching. So when I first started teaching on this 10, 15 years ago, there was not a tremendous student interest, particularly in the environment and sustainability part and actually bringing that into your career, having a career where you work for an organization that aligns with your ideals, with your purpose, in addition to just sort of being a conscious consumer. And over this period, the student interest has just skyrocketed. I talk to the students nowadays and they're really focused on sort of finding work that aligns well with their values. And so there's a lot of surveys and other studies that show that 70 plus percent of millennials want to work in companies that have a sort of a social impact. Even many of them sort of want to create a new system, actually, that is much more socially focused. I don't want to go as far to say socialism, but I think basically what they're saying is that they feel that the economic system is really out of balance and it needs to be rebalanced. This is definitely something that I found and it's really driven a lot of the founders that I've talked to, young early stage founders, and the people that ends up, even the large B Corps end up hiring. These are passionate young people that are really looking to work in companies where they can bring their values to work as well. In 2018, you were one of only a dozen academics granted the honor of briefing the Chinese prime minister on key changes in the world that uh, China should listen to understand and adapt. In your opinion, how appropriate is the B Corp movement to China, the world's second largest economy, and have they awoken from Mao's dream? Yeah, so it was a true honor. I mean, I think that most of the other folks that were involved were technology-oriented, hard sciences. And to have someone like myself, sort of social scientist, I think it was an honor both to me personally, but then also I think it really showed a lot about the Chinese were really interested in developing a much more sustainable development model. I mean, for the past 30 years, it's been growth at all costs, tremendous pollution, right? You know, health scares like regarding various pollutants in milk and, and other bad situations. And so I think the government is really much more focused on sustainable development. And so I think that companies doing their part is certainly a, a huge part of that. And I think that for large companies, that's sustainability programs, CSR. And I do think for the entrepreneurs and the millennials there too which are also very socially focused, you know, starting small companies and having them grow is another sort of avenue as well. And those can certainly be B Corps. And there's, like I said, a growing set of B Corps in China. Back in our hemisphere here, with 50% of the world's B Corps outside of the U.S., how appropriate is the B Corp movement to America, still the largest economy? Yeah, no, I think it's still very, very appropriate. I think it's where the movement was founded, the founders, are still are American and tuned into the American entrepreneurship. Headquarters is in America. And I think there's a lot of really innovative and important social 
businesses in America, from Patagonia to seventh generation. I think I mentioned Kickstarter is a B Corp, King Arthur Flower, you know, dates to 1790s, an employee-owned company, Eileen Fisher. Uh, there's tons of these B Corps that exist in the U.S. So I think that as a model of how business can have a social impact, I think the U.S. will always be very important. I do think, though, that when you look at the large B Corps, so I mentioned this program where they're trying to get larger companies involved, I think there, perhaps the balance of weight might shift outside the United States, and particularly Europe and South America. So the economic models there are much less short-term oriented, much more community oriented. Yeah, so the first cohort of companies that's involved in the program that B-Lab is trying to get the largest company, larger companies involved, they're all either European or from South America. So I do think innovation-wise and small, medium company-wise, I think the U.S. will still continue to be the real center of gravity. But as you look to large companies, I think that the initial pioneers in that will be outside the U.S., mostly from Europe and South America. In your book, you say tipping points typically occur after a change has been percolating under the surface for a while and not been fully recognized. At some point, though, an event connects the dots and leads to greater awareness and a steeper growth trajectory. What kind of event do you think it will take to join those dots and move the B Corp from the margins to the mainstream? It's hard to know in advance what the tipping points are. It's sort of all, it's very easy in retrospect to say, okay, that was the, the turning point that really led us to this fast growth phase. I think maybe getting some of these large companies on board is important. If you think about sort of the underlying dynamics, it's really about having individuals understand the movement and know that there's this maybe B logo that connects all the companies as a possible example. So for instance, when you have Danone as a B Corp, they have products that are in most American households refrigerator, be it Oikos yogurt or silk soy milk or Horizon organic milk or whatever, lots of products. All those products now have the B Corp logo on them. People go to their pantry and they see the King Arthur flower and a whole actually side panel of the flower sack has the B Corp logo and some explanatory information. They go to Eileen Fisher or Athleta, yoga and sportswear brand, also B Corp. The B Corp logo is in the tag. Now that we have all these larger, well-known companies, I think that it's possible that as people keep sort of seeing this B, that might spur a tipping point. So larger companies, I also modestly hope that my book can help a little bit too, because I'm busy going out talking to a lot of people like yourself, and many of them have not heard of the B Corp movement before, and presumably many of their listeners have not either. And so hopefully I can also be active in spreading the word to new audiences. In some recent research we conducted, we asked business leaders whether COVID-19 marked a tipping point towards stakeholder capitalism. 54% said yes, 16% no, and senior executives were 83% yes. So in some respects, they certainly feel that it's pushing in that direction. What does it really mean, put my consultant hat on here for a second, you have, you have a B Corp, how is that different if you had a B Corp next to a traditional C Corp? What actually is different? What kind of executives are different? Processes? Can you walk us through some of the differences? Sure. So there doesn't have to be differences. There's many companies I've talked to that say, I've heard this one line, we were a B Corp before B Corps existed. So this is something that there's many companies that operate on a triple bottom line, have highly responsible leadership. Unfortunately, without the B Corp 
certification, it's hard to tell those companies from maybe many companies that are greenwashing and they're just communicating a bunch of positive information, but actually not doing the work internally. So where I see the big difference being from regular ordinary companies, not sort of the exemplary ones that are doing it anyway already, are the companies have tracked, measured, and reported on a wide variety of social, environmental, governance, community-oriented metrics, which then are assessed against the standard. And if they pass a certain level, they're certified. So I think that then they're transparent about that. So really, it's about you can tell the company is the real deal. And you don't have to go and look at CSR reports and dig in deeply into the company's activities to actually tell whether they're good or not. But something where you can tell by the B logo, you can have confidence that the company is authentically, socially, and environmentally focused. The World Economic Forum talked about the Great Reset. In fact, their Great Reset from January was recently reset to June. And they actually moved it back, I think, so they could have it in person, the hope is. How did these metrics, ESG, triple bottom line, B Corp, play into that Great Reset narrative that you're hearing coming from them? I think it's very tightly aligned because it's easy to say we're resetting. It's easy to say we're stakeholder driven, but unless you actually in some ways prove it, I think that there'll always be skeptics. And so this is where I see, and I don't see it in like a punitive type of way. What I see is that it provides toolkits for companies. So by actually having a set of standards and metrics, it provides a way for companies to sort of proactively be better and learn about how to actually meet the needs of, the, of tomorrow's consumers. Many of the companies that I talk to, maybe a company that's very focused on their environmental impact, and they've been doing that for decades. And they get certified, they take the B Impact Assessment, which is a certification tool, they say, wow, when we did this and we're able to benchmark then ourselves, not only against the standards, but we can also see where other companies fall. We realize that actually on a number of employee benefits, we're really low. And that actually helps us then because we realize we can raise those benefits to actually be much more in line with what our peer companies are doing and what standards are. So I see that the metrics that you described as being sort of hand in hand with the idea of the reset, both as an enabler, a toolkit to help companies understand what it actually means to be stakeholder driven, but then also on the other side, a way for consumers and other folks like NGOs to actually hold companies accountable. Chris, you've got a unique perspective, not just geographically, but also the fact that you were in banking. So you saw one side of it. Just take the example you mentioned a second ago, that using this criteria, company notices benefits could increase. Well, if you do that, there's a cost to it. And so my broader question is, again, putting my financial hat on, have you conducted in your research a cost-benefit ratio or any kind of analysis where doing some of these things formally and measuring leads to a better financial return, or at least it does so, it leads to these better benefits without hurting the financial bottom line? Is there much research on that yet? Sure. There is definitely some research that looks at these socially driven companies. If you think about it, there's a couple different ways that it can hit the bottom line. So one is a, for through cost savings. Another is through raising the top line, sort of greater revenue. I think there's much more counterintuitive as it is based on the example I just gave. There's a lot more evidence towards on the cost reducing side and sort of what are the mechanisms for that? So one is HR mechanisms. So if you look at these companies, much higher retention, much lower attrition, obviously, and also much higher ability to attract quality talent. The retention is the easy one because you can sort of see what the retention rate of a company is, compare it to its peers. Many of the companies I've studied 
things like fast casual restaurants, consulting firms, manufacturing firms, and their retention rate is way higher than what is sort of industry average and peers. Sorry to interrupt, but if you make sense, because if you just said that millennials are more than half the workforce now and they value this, then doing what they value will retain them. So. Exactly. HR costs are tremendous in firms, having to hire, recruit new people. Also, similar to what you're saying on the employee attraction side, I interviewed someone recently, head of a B Corp in a unique industry, and she told me people in her industry ask her, why are you a B Corp? What sort of savings or economic benefits you have? Similar to what you asked. And she said, I never have to look for people. I don't have to think about that because everyone stays. And when I grow... I've got a line of people out the door waiting to come work for me. So I think that one of the big cost savings is around HR and there's more systematic research. I mean, I've just done mostly qualitative interview research and it's overwhelming the number of people that tell me. In fact, the lost productivity or the reduced loss of productivity, because you know, you got somebody working that wasn't filled. And of course, the other is if your employees value it, then your customers might too, right? Yep, exactly. John Elkington. We talked to him recently, and at the end of the book, you said that, I believe we are in the brink of unprecedented change for the better. Well, John told us that we need an exponential change to fulfill the UN's SDGs. And so I hear a lot of the similar things, just using different terms from the two of you. Do you think this unprecedented change that you hope for will be exponential? And what does it take to make it nonlinear? So I do think things like the climate crisis potential that suggests that we have a limited amount of time to really address some of these really systemic issues in our economy and society. And so I do hope that we can make it exponential, but I think it goes back a little bit to our tipping point discussion earlier. It's hard to know when it's going to tip. And I think maybe on the environment, there might be natural disasters and other problems that really bring that to the fore. I hope that we don't need natural disasters to actually get people focused on it. But certainly people like John, that pioneer in this work, who's been doing it for decades uh, and very connected to the B Corp movement, I should say, as well. His companies, his first sustainability was the first B Corp in the UK and Volans, his consulting company, was the second B Corp in the UK. So I think having leaders like him keeping pushing us and hopefully it won't take any disasters to focus us. Starting to converge. For the executive listening, what are three things they can do in their own company, which probably isn't a B Corp at this point, to take steps towards either formally or informally adopting these guidelines and principles? Sure. So I think they should go take a look at the B Corp model, maybe go through there's a B impact assessment, a quick assessment where they can maybe sort of benchmark their company. I think there's a lot to be said for tracking and measuring things. And that might give them some idea of like, okay, you know, here are some things that might make sense to put on the agenda for things we may want to be tracking in the future. I think that's one thing. I think two, when you think about sort of your hiring and HR systems, think about how you can factor in sort of greater inclusion, diversity. That's a big focus of actually the B Corp work and movement, very important and salient today. So I think that might be an area where they can draw on that. And the third item, I think the millennials nowadays are really focused around purpose and the extent to which the company can come up with a purpose to really orient itself beyond just a CSR program, maybe taking on a specific cause as something central to the company. You know, I think that might help with their recruiting efforts. You mentioned several really interesting names and organizations in the book. One I'd like to call out, Pope Francis's Economy of Francisco, which aims to make the economy of today and tomorrow fair, sustainable, and inclusive with no one left behind. Are you doing work with that organization or what caught your eye about that? 
sort of two things. So one, as I was researching the book, a number of folks that I talked to, particularly from Europe, some from Italy, told me about this, that it was really very well aligned with the B Corp movement. And actually a number of B Corps were involved in the, this broader set of organizations that's helping sponsor some of the activities. And I am actually doing some speaking. There's an event in October that's being held that I'm speaking at through this initiative. And then I think it's next year, next spring, hopefully we'll be able to make it in person to Italy given travel demands, which I've also been invited to keynote. It's not the main event. It's one of the events that's focused more on social entrepreneurship, but I uh, will be keynoting that. I'm pulling for you to be there in person. Yeah, and I hope so. Well, kind of bringing things in, a couple of personal questions. What are the books or people that stand out for you as significant influences? So I guess throughout my life, I've been really fortunate to have a number of wonderful mentors. So just sort of two that really stand out. So when I worked in banking, there was the manager that I had there. I think that he taught me to reach for the skies in some way. That sort of sounds like a cliche, but really, if you set your sights low, you're not going to accomplish much. So, you know, set your sights high. And I think I never would have gotten a PhD without that mentor and motivation. Another mentor I had was um, one of my PhD dissertation advisors. And one of the things that I really learned from him is I think in academia, it's an ivory tower. And, you know, it's called the ivory tower for a reason. There's a real interest in focusing very narrowly on niche and abstract concepts to sort of make yourself look more smart and important to your other academics. And he really oriented me to a much more practical sense and to think about actually how my ideas impact the real world. And that had a huge impact in, in what I studied and actually the fact that I've written this book. What online resources do you recommend and how can people find you online? Sure. So I'll just say one thing, the B-Lab website to learn about B-Corporations is bcorporation.net. I think that's a great resource to learn. There's white papers. They can do the B impact assessment. They can learn about the movement more generally. Also, you know, my name is my web. So chrismarquis.com. So people can go there. There's a page specifically for the book that has descriptive information, the endorsements. And then also, you know, because I really want this book to be a useful resource for many different audiences, I've written a discussion guide for people to talk about it, teaching guide. So if you're a professor or other teacher that wants to teach on it, there's a teaching guide on the website and a variety of business guides for entrepreneurs. So people should take a look at that too. Great. And everyone, you can find details on our show notes and transcripts at infosys.com slash IKI in our podcast section. Chris, thank you so much for your time and a very interesting discussion. Great. Jeff, thanks so much. Really like to talk to you. Everyone, you've been listening to the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. Thanks to our producer, Catherine Burdett, Carrie Taylor, and the entire Knowledge Institute team. Until next time, keep learning and keep sharing.